Originals by Adam Grant, Chapter 5, entitled Goldilocks and the Trojan Horse. Of course, we all know the story of Goldilocks and the three bears, how she comes to find that one bed is too big, one bed is too small, and one bed is just right. And of course, the Trojan Horse, meaning going in in a disguise. So subtitle of this chapter is Creating and Maintaining Coalitions. A coalition is like a cooperative a group or an alliance with other groups. He speaks a lot in this chapter about the suffrage movement in America that started in 1855. They wanted the right to vote for women. And it actually took until 1920 for that to happen. So he speaks in this chapter about the interesting point between three main leaders of this movement in the early days and how they split apart based on differences of opinion about how to do things and how that really increased the number of years it took for them to reach their goal due to their diverging opinions and the uh, inability for them to cooperate. He says, this chapter examines how originals form alliances to advance their goals and how to overcome the barriers that prevent coalitions from succeeding. The key insight is a Goldilocks theory of coalition formation. The originals who start a movement will often be its most radical members, whose ideas and ideals will prove too hot for those who follow their lead. To form alliances with opposing groups, it's best to temper the cause, cooling it as much as possible. Yet, to draw allies into joining the cause itself, what's needed is a moderately tempered message that is neither too hot nor too cold, but just right. He goes on to give various examples in this book about, about this, so hopefully we'll touch on them as we go on. Uh, first he talks about the narcissism of small differences. We often assume that uh, common goals bind groups together, but the reality is that they often drive groups apart. There was some studies done, and they observed that even though groups may share a fundamental objective, uh, they often go apart on uh, small differences. Sigmund Freud wrote, it is precisely the minor differences in people who are otherwise alike that form the basis of feelings of strangeness and hostility between them. He gives some interesting examples. When a deaf, deaf woman won Miss America, she was criticized by deaf for not being deaf enough because she didn't use sign language. When a light-skinned black woman won a certain position, she was criticized for not being black enough. Greenpeace was criticized by more radical environmental activists. 
and so on. In one study, vegans and vegetarians evaluated members of their own groups and of each other's groups relative to the members of the general public. So vegans showed nearly three times as much prejudice towards vegetarians as vegetarians did towards vegans. In the eyes of more extreme vegans, the mainstream vegetarians were wannabes. Quote, if they really cared about the cause, they wouldn't eat animal products like eggs. There's another study in Greece um, where, oh no, sorry, this is in, um, I guess Israel, Orthodox Jews evaluated conservative Jewish women more negatively than Jewish women who didn't practice or observe religious holidays at all. The message was clear. If you were a true believer, you'd be all in. The more strongly you identify with an extreme group, the harder you seek to differentiate yourself from more modest groups that threaten your values. It's a little bit complicated sentence. I'll try to break it down here. Um, the more strongly you, you see yourself and your values as part of a group that could be uh, very extreme, very original, then you look for ways more, maybe subconsciously, you want to differentiate to make yourself different or better than a more moderate group that might threaten your values. Like we could take the example of vegans and vegetarians. The vegans would maybe be the extreme group and you therefore want to make yourself different or better than a modern group like vegetarians because they threaten your values that we shouldn't have any animal products. So in this chapter he talks a lot about the uh, suffrage movement in America again and he says it was this kind of horizontal hostility that caused Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton to split off from Lucy Stone. So it was these small differences. They had the general goal was the same but small differences broke them apart and even made them go against each other i won't get into all the details about what that was it's elaborately described the full uh, history here but the general idea is um, what eventually brought them to again gain a movement i mean the suffrage movement in america was almost dead at one point and then they started to form coalitions with the WCTU, the Women's Christian Temperance Union. And the Women's Christian Temperance Union was groups of women aimed at trying to get rid of alcohol in the U.S. because it did so much damage to their sons and husbands. And the suffrage movement started to form alliance with them saying well if we have the right to vote then we can vote against uh, alcohol usage so they were able to take a very radical idea of uh, women being equal as men and tone it down to make it moderate well women have a very strong place in the family and so on which was more the mainstream american idea and the women should should have a stronger voice to protect home values and so on.
and like that they were finally able to increase their strength in numbers. Uh, another study was done where three groups of people were assigned to listen to the Canadian National Anthem under three different conditions. Uh, in one condition, participants read the words silently while the song plays. In another condition, they sang the song out loud together. And in the third condition, they all sang, but not in unison. They each heard the song at a different tempo. So there was a test, a twist. After the singing, they moved into what was supposedly a different study. Well, the participants thought they were being tested on their singing ability. So they moved to a different study where they had a chance to keep money for themselves or cooperate by sharing it with the group. The few minutes they spent singing together should not have affected their behavior, but it did. The group that sang together shared significantly more. They reported feeling more similar to each other and more like a team than participants from the other conditions where the, they only read the song or they sang out of, out of uh, step with the others. Um, various studies were done and they found that uh, shared tactics were an important predictor of alliances. Even if they care about different causes, groups find affinity when they use the same methods of engagement. Therefore, the suffrage movement could align, the voting rights movement of America could align with the um, women who wanted to get rid of alcohol in America. They, they cared about a cause. They cared about different causes, but they could use the same method to uh, reach their causes. Now comes a story about a certain person named Meredith Perry. She was a college senior in 2011 and suddenly had realization that she wanted to have wireless power. Now she had a concept, but with no prototype, she needed funding to build a prototype, but her idea was so radical that investors wanted to see a prototype first. This is called the chicken and the egg problem or the catch-22. So she was trying to convince investors that she could build a prototype. But they all said, it can't be done, it can't be done, it can't be done. Perry faced an extreme version of every original strug struggle in challenging the status quo, challenging what's normal. That is, overcoming the skepticism of potential key stakeholders. Her initial efforts failed. And then finally, she made a move that contradicted every piece of wisdom that she'd heard about influence. She simply stopped telling experts what she was trying to create. Instead of explaining her plan to generate wireless power, she merely provided the specifications of the technology she wanted. Her old message had been, I'm trying to build a transducer to send power over the air. 
whom her new pitch disguised the purpose. She said, I'm looking for someone to design a transducer with these parameters. Can you make this part? And it worked. She persuaded two acoustic experts to design a transmitter, another to design a receiver, an engineer to construct the electronics. She said, in my head, it all came together. Worst comes to worst, somebody would sue me, she said. But there was no other way, given my knowledge and skill set. But soon, she had a whole bunch of designs, and she went back to the funding person who looked at it and said, oh, wow, this, this could actually work. Then he mentions at this point Simon Sinek, who says, if we communicate the vision behind our ideas, the purpose guiding our products, people will flock to us. This is excellent advice. So he says, when you're doing something original that challenges the status quo, the way things are, you have to be careful about how you communicate your why. You have to be careful about how you're communicating when you challenge something that's already mainstream. When people championing moral change explain their why, it runs the risk of clashing with deep-seated convictions. It challenges what people think is possible. It challenges what people already accept to be true. Researchers found that originals must often become tempered radicals. They, they believe in values that depart from traditions and ideas that go against the grain, yet they learn to tone down their radicalism by presenting their beliefs and ideas in ways that are less shocking and more appealing to mainstream audiences. And this can work. If it's too radical, you only get a small group of radicals that don't go so far. Um, he gives the example of the foot-in-the-door technique, where you lead with a small request to secure an initial commitment before revealing the larger one. By opening with a moderate ask instead of a radical, you gain allies. It says coalitions often fall apart when people refuse to moderate their radicalism. He gives the example how the Occupy Wall Street movement in 2011 failed because they continued to call it the Occupy Wall Street instead of, for example, the 99%. Occupy name implied that the only way you could belong was if you dropped everything you were doing and started occupying something. Occupying is just a single weapon in a huge arsenal of peaceful protest. So by continuing to be radical and saying Occupy Wall Street, their movement actually failed because they couldn't involve enough people by toning it down. Then he talks about frenemies versus enemies. He actually says enemies make better allies than frenemies. Frenemies meaning friend enemies. A frenemy would be someone who, who is your enemy but also your friend. So you get stressed not knowing is he gonna this time be my enemy or this time my friend. And these are people who sometimes support you and sometimes undermine you. But with enemies they can be convinced to join you, to join your cause. 
or at least you know who the clear enemy is and you can just avoid them. With these frenemy relationships, also called ambivalent relationships, you are constantly on guard, grappling with questions about when that person can actually be trusted. It takes more emotional energy and coping resources to deal with individuals who are inconsistent. Our instinct would be to then get rid of bad relationships and save the ambivalent relationships, the frenemy ones, but evidence shows and suggests that we opt that we should do the opposite. We should cut out the frenemies, the ones who go back and forth, and attempt to convert our enemies. Our best allies are not the people who have supported us all along. They are the ones who started out against us and then came around to our side. And we also find it more rewarding when someone initially negative feelings toward us gradually become positive than if that person's feelings for us were entirely positive all along. It also gives us short um, ideas here that Familiar makes the heart grow fonder. Mm. He gave the example that people were asked in an experiment to design some new product to help college students succeed in job interviews. And they should start with a familiar concept of a three-ring binder. However, people rated these items as being totally unoriginal. He says that the, when you're generating ideas, your starting point is kind of like the first brush stroke when you paint a painting. And uh, this shapes the path of the rest of the painting. So by telling them to start with a three-ring binder, they came up with non-original ideas related to a three-ring binder. Then again, instead of a three-ring binder, he gave, gave some participants a novel starting point, an inline skate for rollerblading, these uh, skating shoes. And they were no longer captives to the conventional. They generated ideas that scored much higher in originality. Uh, for example, one had the idea to create some way to tell time without constantly looking at your watch. But then, after he had that original idea, he wanted to make it more familiar. So then he showed that inventor different items that one might have during a job interview. And he was able to combine that idea from an inline roller skating to a pen where you could click to keep track of the time, so to say. The point is, if you started the experiment with a pen rather than an inline skate, you'd probably end up with something a lot like a conventional pen. But by starting with something unexpected in the context of job interviews, like an inline skate, and then incorporating the familiarity of a pen, you can develop an idea that is both novel and useful. Back to examples from the suffrage movement he points out that first we need to think differently about values instead of assuming that others share our principles or trying to convince them to adopt ours 
we ought to present our values as a means of pursuing theirs. It's hard to change other people's ideas. It's much easier to link our agendas to familiar values that people already have. And in the case of wireless power, transparency isn't always the best policy. As much as they want to be straightforward with potential partners, originals occasionally need to reframe their ideas to appeal to their audience. Originality is what everybody wants, but there's a sweet spot. If it's not original enough, it's boring. If it's too original, it may be hard for the audience to understand. The goal is to push the envelope but not tear the envelope, he says. He also gives here a strategy for creating coalitions across conflict lines. Um, Kelman did something very interesting between Israel and Palestine, where they had a series of unofficial workshops which involved three to six representatives from each country, Israel and Palestine where each representative would share their ex perspectives and avoid blaming each other and simply share like that together. He says it's better to send doves from each group rather than hawks to negotiate. And this coalition between Israel and Palestine, or this group, was the first time in history in 1993 that they reached a face-to-face -face agreement by having let's to say, more tempered, more moderate, more peaceful, more dove-like people from each group uh, speaking together rather than the radical leaders of each group. In that way, coalitions can be formed across conflict lines. Thus ends the fifth chapter entitled Goldilocks and the Trojan Horse, Creating Coalitions. Tune in next time for chapter six, Rebel with a Cause, how siblings, parents, and mentors nurture originality.